The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. Sometimes there's a little bit of smugness that captures us in life. Uh, we can live our lives under control and we're making decisions and we're making our plans and we're using our money wisely and we can forget that it's by him and through him that we have our being and our existence. At any given moment, God can say to any one of us, give me back my breath. That's why arrogance and pride is so asinine and ridiculous, for we control nothing. Every single day, as our heart pounds, each beat of our hearts should be a praise going up to our great God, saying, thank you. Thank you for this moment. Let's bow our heads together. Let's think about the goodness and the grace of God in our lives. Let's think about how he has sustained us. Think about the families he's given to us. Think about how he's met our needs. Think about the fact that we are vertical. We're not laying horizontal in a casket. That we have meaning and purpose. And let's just praise him for that. Holy Father, pride is so seductive, it's so alluring, it can justify itself and sound so very noble. But God, we declare to you in our own hearing that we need you every second, every moment of the day. And we praise your holy name that you have sustained us, you have kept us. You have met our every need. Even those of us right now who are going through dark, lonely times and those of us who are out of jobs and we're discouraged and maybe disappointed. Lord, you keep us and you keep giving us our daily bread. And so we bless and praise your name. Truly, if we think, we will thank. And so, Lord, we bless you. We thank you. We praise you. And now I pray in the name of your son that you will sit in this room today. God, uh, you know that I, I am frail, I am human, and I stand behind the cross and under the canopy of your word. And I pray that you will speak to us, give all of us what we need. Father, I'm aware of the fact that nobody needs to hear my miscellaneous ramblings about anything. But we need to hear from heaven today. Uh, we, we live or die based upon your word. So God, speak, encourage, move us to where you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, fellowship. Good to see you. Good to see you this morning. I see a few of our folks have gone to the mountains early. And, uh, <laughs> but I'm glad that you're here and it's a joy, joy to be here with you today. I was reminded this morning... Um, of just of the wonderful grace of God on our church, did you know that it was a year ago this month that we started fellowship in Hispaniol? And uh, it is just absolutely amazing to see what God's, God's doing. If you go downstairs, you'll be wall-to-wall people there. And to see how God is using uh, Miguel and Maria Montenegro is absolutely wonderful. Hardly a week goes by where someone is not giving their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ uh, in our services. Continue to pray for that vision. 
Um, uh, the vision is not just here for fellowship. It's not just to have uh, uh, a church that meets here. The vision is actually to expand and to go beyond uh, fellowship itself and to plant other churches around the, the 285 uh, corridor uh, in, in the Hispanic, Hispanic community. And by the way, if you're visiting with us, we're, again, just delighted that you're here. Thank you for stopping by. If there's any way that we can be of help or encouragement to you, please let us know. Uh, you have prayer requests or anything, use the, the bottom of the, uh, your bulletin, tear that off. We would uh, just love, love to be in touch with you and meet your needs. There's some people out there in the commons. Um, if you want to ask something about our church and how to get connected, I'm sure they'll be more than delighted to, uh, to tell you how you can do that. If you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. It's Back in the New Testament, I don't know how many books back it is, so look at the table of contents and you'll be able to get there. This is the last in our installment on the series on stuff. We've been talking about really a series on generosity, what it really means to be generous. And as we've been saying each week, with the exception of last week when we had the guest speaker, generosity is written on the hearts of anyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, to be a faithful follower of Christ of necessity means that we are generous. It has everything to do with the grace, with the grace of God. Now, specifically today, I'm talk, going to talk about doing good and what it means to do good. And at the end of my message today, I want to share with you something that God has laid on the hearts, and we've been talking about this of our elders and of our staff and our leadership here an initiative that we believe God wants us to come alongside of and help translate into reality and that will involve, involve all of us. I'm only going to be speaking from two verses. I'm going to be speaking from uh, Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, but for context purposes, I want to begin reading in verse 6. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, capture these two verses. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers. Many, many say he probably was the greatest English-speaking preacher of all times. He lived and ministered in London back in the 19th century, near the second half of the 19th century. But what many people don't know, as you read about the life of Spurgeon, you, you get surprised at this because he was such a great preacher, such a great pulpiteer, so eloquent, and had such a tremendous impact theologically during his time and biblically during his time. Uh, what you don't realize is that he was an incredibly compassionate and generous man. He gave away huge sums of money, sacrificed himself. In fact, uh, his whole life in ministry was driven by generosity. He was famous for this quotation, um, and I want to share it with you. It's going to be on the screen. 
This really frames where we want to go today. Spurgeon said, a good character is the best tombstone. Those who loved you and were helped by you will remember you when the forget-me-nots have withered. And then this line, carve your names on hearts, not marble. Carve your names on hearts, not marble. If we would outline our own lives, we will be struck by the mile markers of God's incredible generosity shown to us through others. I was, uh, just yesterday as I was reviewing this, I was overcome and the tears filled my eyes because I thought about how I stand on the shoulders of so many people who love me and who has invested in me. Men in my, when I was a young teenager, would come by and just shake my hand and put a check in my hand because they knew I was a young struggling preacher. Now I'm an old struggling preacher, but, but nobody puts checks in my hands. <laughs> you know, people who showed me kindness, did things for me that I didn't deserve. And I, I look over my life as you do too. And you cannot explain that, can you? Just God's amazing goodness. Once again, that's the reason why pride and arrogance are very terrible things. They're really not that good. For when you look at your life in context, there are things that have happened to you and happened to me that can only be explained by the irrational goodness of God. Why did they do that? Why did they open those doors? Why did they drop your name? Why did they bless you? Why did they come along when you were discouraged and disappointed? Why did they speak into your life? Why? It is the goodness of God. There's a cycle that God creates in Christianity. We get too heavy for our own good. We are to lead with the wonderful goodness of God. I love what uh, George Washington Carver, the, the celebrated uh, scientist and, and professor from Tuskegee Institute, He was famous for this line. He says, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and strong. And then this line. Because someday in your life, you will have been all of them. You will have been all of them. God allows us to go through dry hard, desperate times so that our pride will be crushed and we will know how to receive so that when he does bless us, we'll remember those days. When I read that line from Carver, I thought of a a famous preacher from California, Dr. E.V. Hill, who uh, was lovingly notorious for his generosity, especially to young preachers. He, he, He would pay... He would pay for their, their education. He would, he would help them through seminary. Uh, he would pay for their rent. Uh, he was known to buy them clothes and this kind of thing. And when you would ask him, why, why do you do this? Why do you do this? He would say, I remember those early days of my life. And I remember when I was in need. And I remember older preachers, older people coming alongside of me and showing me the kindness and the goodness of God. And I promise God that if you would ever bless me, if you ever would give me any resources, I promise you that I would do the same 
for others. Goodness has been lost in some respect. It's been tempered. We, we negotiate goodness. We redefine goodness. We, we, we're a little bit quid pro quo with goodness. And I'm afraid that we have lost the nobility of being good just for the sake of being good, just because it's right to be good. You don't need anything back. You don't want anything back. God's been good. So he's called us, called us to be good. You know, I, I just, uh, Karen and I think about this an awful lot. We talk about this an awful lot, especially the last two, three years. All of us have been slammed. The economy is slamming us, and the, it doesn't seem like the breakers stop. And, you know, and I, I got to tell you, every time I hear of a person who is out of work in our church or who can't make ends meet, I say to myself, you know, that could be me and Karen. That could be us. Why isn't it us? Because I've heard stories here. I mean, people, you know, they've handled their money right. They've done the right thing. They just got in a slam. And the bottom falls out. And I want to drop this text in in a broader context. I've been saying along, and so bear with me. I made, a, in my mind, a benchmark statement for this series about three, four weeks ago in the first message on generosity. I said, biblically speaking, there are three major motivational reasons why we should be generous. Three big reasons. Number one is because we're not the proprietors of our lives. The statement, God literally owns it all. Owns it all. And every time a Christian gets too attached to his checkbook, his investments, his portfolio, whatever, God has a way of slapping hands and cutting the attachment. The realization is, is that we own nothing. Literally. God owns it all. He owns you. He owns me. He owns my opportunities. He owns my talents. He owns my mind. He owns everything. God literally owns it all. The second motivational factor as to why we should be generous, (laughs) it has to do with the fact that we have a new heart. Generosity is core to the gospel. For God so loved this, this world that he gave his only son. He didn't give one of his sons. He gave his only son. Core to the gospel, core to authentic Christianity is generosity. I argue that you cannot be a follower of Jesus. You cannot be a believer unless you're growing in generosity. It is, it is part of who we, who we are. We have a new heart. And because we have received this wonderful grace from God, we want to give. And the third motivational factor is that we're in a new family. Think about that. God has placed us into the family in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And we're going to see this in a moment here in Galatians 6. God has placed us in the family with people who have needs. Now, now, now hear me. The fact that we're placed in the family of God with others who have needs is a constant reminder that we ought to give. The very nature of the body of Christ, with people who struggle, people with needs, people who lack, we ought to give. And the law first mentioned, when the church is first started, we hear this remarkable statement in Acts chapter 2 that they were selling what they have and giving to one another. In Acts chapter 4, the same thing at the very beginning. They wanted people to be whole, people to give. So generosity is not just, quote, a stewardship emphasis that we do every fall. 
Generosity is part of our identity. It's part of who we are. Now, having said that, generosity is really about being good. Paul puts a book in on this whole passage where he's talking about sowing and reaping, and and he's speaking very broadly about behavior and, and about managing that. He's talking about putting people back in fellowship with God who who hurt and are sinful. And, and he says in verse 1, if you catch anyone in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Even that is a part of giving. And by the way, parentheses, this is all script here. Uh, be very careful of looking down your nose on somebody who's fallen into sin, a brother or sister. We take no pride in somebody else's defeat. We should be weeping And the goal of God for every person who sins is to come alongside of them and to place them back into wholeness. Wholeness. You see, Christianity is all about being whole. All about putting things back together. And so he puts a book in on this, and those last two verses, those last two verses have six phrases. And I want to walk through all six of those phrases. Again, let me read the verses again. Verses 9 and 10, the last two verses of of this middle paragraph here. He says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. I think Paul is basically saying two things, two big things in these two verses, and he wraps these six phrases around it to explain it. Very, very intentional. And I hope I don't bore you this morning. But each one of these phrases is incredibly significant in understanding the essence of the profound goodness that God wants us to walk in and to demonstrate. The two big things that he's saying, it's not all that heavy. Number one, in verse 9, he's saying it's always right to do good. That's what he's saying in verse 9. It's always right to do good. And then in verse 10, he's saying good is what we do. He says, okay, it's always right to do good without caveat, without disclaimer, without pre-qualifier, none of that. It's always right to do good, period. And then secondly, he says, good is what we do, period. He, He attaches that to the core of Christianity. All right, let's walk through this. Number one, he says in verse nine, it is always right to do good. The opening phrase says, and let us not grow weary in doing good. Very straightforward language. He says, number one, I don't want you to get tired of doing good. I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but the very fact that he says, don't get tired of, being, of doing good, means that you can get tired of doing good. Anybody been there? I have. I was there this past week. There your pastor confessed that. You get tired of putting up with nonsense in your mind. You know what I mean? Keep throwing money down a rat hole. No, not that people are rats. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) The expression lose heart here is a Greek word. Uh, Hanging it with me. I I say this on purpose because it's an unusual word. And when when you know what the word means, you say, well, why did he choose that word? There's a reason for it. The, the, the expression lose heart is ekkanizo, ekkanizo. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the problem with that word is I was fishing around this text. I'm going, why did Paul use this word? 
Because that word literally means to dedicate or to concentrate. So you go, huh? Why did he translate a word that means to dedicate or consecrate? Don't get weary. But then the lights came on in my mind. I think what he's saying is the reason why we get tired, we reach a point when we get disappointed and our hearts are no longer dedicated to doing good. You ever ever get there? You ever feel like you just keep giving and 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 giving and, and, you know, nobody says thank you, nothing happens, folks mess over you, you're taken for granted, you don't feel appreciated, and all of a sudden you say, you know what, I don't have to do that. I really don't have to do that. And so you end up, I'm not going to give. I'm just not going there. But Paul is saying, don't get tired of that. Because it's not an option for you. We'll see as we get into some of these phrases as he buttresses all of this. And by the way, the word good there is a Greek word, kalos, which is, is really, it's really uh, uh, the best way of translating that. And as you study the word good, the goodness of God, now there are different Hebrew words and that kind of thing. One of the top usages throughout scriptures, not just moral excellence, although that is true, it is that which is honorable, that which is noble. And technically speaking, speaking, in the Bible, goodness is not dropped into reciprocity. It's not to be negotiated. Goodness, by its very definition in the Bible, is, is, is not tethered. It is not chained. It is, it is not conditioned. Goodness, by its very definition in the Bible, is noble. In other words, you, you don't do it. You don't do it because you want perks. You want something back. Is that the reason why you're good? Is that the reason why you're good? Again, you've heard me say this here. If you give looking for something in return, you've not given, but you've, you've invested. But there is a nobility about goodness. Reciprocity can diminish the honorable nature of the good that we do. And some of you, and, and, I, and this, is, this has happened to me too, you know, my mama taught me, son, always write thank you notes when somebody does something nice for you. Make sure you pick up the phone and tell them thank you. And we've taught our kids that too. And that's a good thing to do. Nothing's worse than not feeling appreciated. And I think that's just, that's just good to do. But the truth of the matter is, you don't do it for that. You don't do it for that. You don't do it to get your name listed. You do it because goodness is noble. It is right. The second phrase. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. That's the reason why we don't grow weary. Why? Because in due season we will reap. But the reaping does not belong to the people. You do this in the sight of God. You do it in the sight of God. The harvest will come. Now, a couple of observations here. The reaping here will come in God's proper time. Now, to mine, you know, one of the good things about being this age is that I'm finally seeing a little bit of the dividends of things that I thought were were lost. You ever sacrifice? You ever have people mess over you? I could tell you a ton of stories, but I don't want to be here all day long. 
tell you about things that I've given up early part of my life. I felt like somebody bullied me or somebody pushed me in a corner and I was forced to give it up. But it was God's way of teaching me how to give and teaching me the lesson that when I sacrifice, I really don't give up anything. The harvest will come. And I want to encourage you today, if you're feeling underappreciated and you feel like, you know what, I mean, you know, this is terrible. I want to tell you something. The harvest will come. The harvest will come. Now, it may not come in this life, but it will come in full in the life to come. I want you to hold your finger there and go over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to what Paul says to those who are resourced. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now notice this line, verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And here's the line. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I have been beating this drum a lot at this place, but one of the big problems and one of the things that guys like me, preachers like me, have messed up on is that we have so much presented transactional Christianity that we've taught people to think that the payoff is in this life. Do these seven things and this will happen to you. Do these three things and that will happen to you. Do this one thing and that will happen to you. Get this right formula and that will happen to you. You give this and that will happen to you. And we've lost eternity. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't talk about eternal motivation. But the reason why we give and the reason why we're generous is is not that you have a reward to give me. It's over there. It's over there. And that keeps our generosity where it needs to be. That keeps our goodness where it needs to be, at a noble place, at an honorable, honorable place. Well, three important observations I'd like to make. Getting back to Galatians 6, number one, As we are good, we've got to give the seed time to take root and to bear fruit. Give it time. The second observation is that each day we are to sow seed so that one day we'll be able to reap. Um, I don't mean to sound so pragmatic here, but I said this a few weeks ago. Some of us struggle financially, and it's not because we're not good money managers. Is that because we're selfish? We're selfish. And here, uh, you you got to plant. You got to plant. Now, I'm not saying, uh, you know, you give money and God's going to give you money back. But one of the things that being generous and being good with our lives and being noble with our lives, one of the things that it does is that it fights selfishness. It fights selfishness. If you make as a habit to do something good for somebody every day, I didn't say give them money, but do something that will take you out of your comfort zone. Do something, whether it's a phone call that is, you know, you're jammed, but you get, you're thinking about somebody, they're on your heart and mind, and you just want to bless them and encourage them. Say, I'm driving along here, I'm thinking about you, and you pick up the phone and call. 
But you got an extra 50 bucks hanging around. Rather than taking a dinner, maybe find a kid that needs a little bit of help or something special. I have found that when I discipline myself to do that, I have a tendency to take my hands off my life. Think about those things. The other observation I'd like to make is that we must remember that the Lord of the harvest is in charge and not the laborers. He's in charge of the harvest. He's in charge of the response. He's in charge of that. And this has freed me so much. Now, we need to think in terms of being good stewards. You shouldn't be investing money in things where people have bad integrity and things. That's, that's not right. But on the other hand, don't go to the other extreme. I don't obsess over somebody mismanaging the money that I gave. Because ultimately, although I did due diligence, although I asked the right questions, you need to do all that, ultimately, I didn't give it to them anyway. I gave it to the Lord. So I don't obsess over that. And I think that's what the spirit of what Paul is saying here. This is going to be a harvest, but remember, (laughs) he's the Lord of the harvest, Crawford. You're just one of the laborers. He owns the field, not you. The third phrase. Stay after it. The last part of verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up. I think it's a purposeful redundancy here. I think Paul is repeating himself. He said, don't grow weary. He says, okay, now don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. You feel like growing weary? Don't give up. Because what goodness is a constant. It's a constant in our lives. So don't don't cave in. Don't give up. Uh, The expression not to give up means to unloose, to set yourself free of obligation and responsibility. It's like, you know, throwing up your hands and saying enough is enough. Have you been there? I've been there. Have you ever been there with family members? Hmm. Yeah, I speak to some professional athletes and all of a sudden, when they sign, they discover they have relatives that didn't exist. <laughs> you know, it's so like, who do you, well, you know, I'm your third cousin from your Aunt Sookie. Oh, really? <laughs> you, ever, you, ever, you ever feel like that? You, you ever feel like throwing up your hands and saying, yeah, I just, I, just can't, I just can't do this. And by the way, there are times to do that. There are times when people are being irresponsible, and the greatest gift you can give them is a the gift of responsibility and the gift of consequences. And that's good. So I'm not saying throw money after irresponsibility, but there are times in which you just want to stop. You want to throw out your hands and say, I'm not doing this anymore. But Paul is giving us a loving warning here. And I think what he's saying to us, and I want us to hear this, church. Some of us are a little bit too scientific about our giving. And I think what he's saying to us is that sometimes we're called to give to things that on the surface seems to be making little progress. I am so glad that people gave to me as a young teenager in my early 20s. They didn't have a clue. Not much payback. And sometimes God calls us to give the stuff that you can't measure, 
you can't put your arms around, but it's the right thing to do. And I think that's the warning that Paul is saying here. Wait, 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 wait. Don't get so close to your giving that you think you can control outcomes. I'm doing something that maybe you can't measure. It's a loving warning. We give where there's no thank you. Now, first of all, it's always right to give. It's always right to be good. Always right to be good. And then he says in verse 10, good is what we do. So he summarizes verse 10. He says, so then, as you have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Let us do good to everyone. Good is what we do. Here he's saying that goodness is part of our identity. I said this before. It's part of what it means to be Christian. Part of what it means to be Christian. We, 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 we've experienced the grace of God. And as a result of experiencing the grace of God, we are grateful. And because we're grateful, we want to demonstrate that gratitude and, and giving and generosity to other people. Because we've been there. We've been cleansed. We've been forgiven. And that's what we do. And Paul is just say, stating the obvious. He's like saying, okay, Galatians, you know, this is, this is not like a project here. Okay? It's not a project. It's not some initiative. It's not some capital campaign. Uh, it's not, not, no, no, this is, I'm taking that off the table. Uh, goodness is your identity. Goodness is who you are. You can't help but to be, to be good. In order for us to understand these phrases, I, I've kind of outlined them this way. Uh, this is our moment, our moment. I want you to pay attention to the word. He says, so then as we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, this assumes two things. Number one, we may not always have the opportunity to do good. We may not. But I think there's a more specific meaning here that the, you know, the word opportunity, it's translated opportunity, but it's a Greek word. Kairos. And I want to suggest to you that what Paul is talking about are particular seasons in which to do good. Now, hang in there with me. There are two Greek words um, that's used often to trans- often translated time. One of them is chronos. You know, we get chrono- chrono- chronograph and, you know, it's, it's literally just means time. Just means dates, days, minutes, seconds, time. It has, has no relational component to it, no, no historic component to it. It just means time. But then there's the Greek word kairos. Kairos. Kairos has to do with, uh, with historic meaning at that point in time. September 11th, 2001. Kairos. What happened on that day has changed everything. Kairos. But in a less dramatic sense, he's saying that there are kairos moments in our lives. Kairos moments in the history of the church. Kairos moments in which God wants us to be aware and take advantage of those kairos moments. A limited period of time to do what really matters and counts. I don't know about you, but have you ever mourned the time that you wasted? 
you know, it's in to say right now, if you're past 40 or 45 or 50, so I don't, I, I, I look back, I don't have any regrets. Liar. <laughs> you lie. <laughs> Since I say that, I don't know why, why, why this comes to mind. My, my, my youngest son, when he was a little dude, this has nothing to do with the message, but I feel like sharing it. Um, <laughs> He, he couldn't get these metaphors right. He couldn't get these things right. So Brian's like eight years older than Brendan. Brendan's like four, and Brian's like 12, and we're at the dinner table, and Brian was saying that Brendan did something, and Brendan was defending himself. And, and so this was hilarious. He says, Brian, you lie. You lie, you, you lie like a chicken. Yes. <laughs> I said, rug, son, but I appreciate the intensity there. But that's... Uh, <laughs> You know, But we've all had those times in which we mourn. That was an opportunity. It was a God moment. I could have done this. Oscar Schindler could have done more. And somehow in our self-absorbed culture and society, we're so focused on our needs and where we are and what's in front of us that I sometimes think we lose those kairos moments. I could have done, done more. So Paul says, as we have opportunity, this is our moment. What is our mission? Verse 10, the middle part that clause says, and let us do good to everyone, to everyone, you know, I know that there are Christians who have a hard time uh, giving resources to non-believers. I got to tell you, I don't have a particularly difficult time doing that. Paul says that we're to do good to everyone. He doesn't qualify the goodness. Now, I don't mean that we ought to give money to sinful things. Don't hear me say that. But we ought to give things to even unbelievers who are doing noble works for the sake of the gospel. We ought to come alongside of people who are doing noble things. And maybe we can be salt and light and leverage those things. Now, again, don't get me wrong, I have my personal convictions. I don't, I, I don't like giving to things where the gospel's hindered. And if there's a lid on it, I don't think you ought to do that. This is my personal feeling. But I think that there are some ways in which we can give. And Paul says, do good to everyone. It shouldn't be restricted. So where do you get that biblically? Well, just think about this little illustration. Jesus fed the 5,000, 5,000 men. And not all them people were followers of his. But he did good to them. Don't obsess over that. He did good to them. The gospel wins a hearing because of the good that we do. And then the last one is our model. Our model. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Now, bear with me here. Sometimes you need to read sections of scriptures or passages of scripture in a broader context. Hang in there. Most of the commentaries that I've read on this text will say, well, you see, Paul is really saying that you ought to take care of home first and then take care of others. That's yes and no. That's yes and no. Uh, 
If you follow that reasoning, then Paul contradicted himself when he commended the church at Macedonia who gave out of their own need. So what is he saying here? Is he saying that, you know, I think he is saying, yeah, take care of home, but not in a self-centered way. If we as a church just took care of our church and took care of our needs and all the hundreds of families who associate themselves with Fellowship Bible Church, we would never do anything with global missions because the needs are perpetual. They're always there. Every time you turn around, there's there's another need. Churches are like teenage children, always hungry and always want something. Ah, That that was not nice to say. And and, uh, I'll hear about that. Uh, my name is Joe Rice. I'm the executive pastor. But uh, that's not what he's saying. I think what he's saying is something that I said the first week. He's talking about the church being the model to the unbelieving world of what care and compassion looks like. So that when unbelievers want to know what the love of God looks like, they can see it in the family of God. You see it there. And it gives them a hunger to experience the God of all grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's incarnational. It's the peoples of God. So Paul says, yeah, do good to everybody. Don't know everybody, everybody. Do good to them. Yeah, you want to give the homeless guy some money? Give him money and pray that he gets sick when he smokes crack. But give it to him. Do good of them. The fellowship, we've got to practice this here. So when people come in contact with us, they come in contact with not just articulation about the goodness of God. Churches are long on talking, and we write, guys like me write articles and things like that, and anybody can write articles. We've got to do the heavy lifting of being God's glorious, good, noble community. That's who we are. Well, what do we do about all this? I want to unveil something, but I've got to tell you what I wrestle with. And we have talked long and hard about this as elders and staff. What I'm about ready to unveil to you is, is an opportunity that we feel as a church we need to step up to. This is not a campaign. It's not a capital campaign. We're not talking about bricks and mortar, but we're talking about people. As elders, we have wrestled in prayer, okay, what does God want us to do as a church? And we happen to feel that this is a Kairos moment for our church. As you know, for whatever reason, and I, I know, for whatever reason, God has given us amazing favor here in Roswell. I, I just am humbled by that. Um, my six-year tenure here, I cannot believe what the Lord has done in terms of the people uh, that we've contacted, and it's a stewardship responsibility. And so what, what are we to do? Well, we have, um, we've identified something called a generosity initiative. And what this is all about, it's, in fact, it's not so much even about what I'm getting ready to tell you what we intend to do. The greatest takeaway is not the numbers, it's not the amount. The greatest takeaway is that for Crawford and Karen, 
Generosity is firmly and more deeply entrenched in who we are as followers of Christ. That's the greatest takeaway. That's the greatest takeaway. But we do believe God's called us to do something tangible. And this is over against the backdrop of something that I said earlier. Every time a believer gives, he, makes, he or she makes these two statements. Every single time we give, when that offering uh, basket was passed, or when you put it in the uh, boxes on the way out, or you give online, every time we make those statements, we, we, we say two things. Number one, I am grateful for the grace of God. And number two, every time I give, I declare, God takes care of me. God takes care of me. You don't take care of me. God takes care of me. Now, having said that, this is a generous church. But we have been deeply moved with the opportunity to do three things over a 12-month period of time. And we want to challenge you, and when you leave here, and Joe's getting ready to come up to explain the details of all of this, but when you leave here, we want to put something in your hand for you to pray about Uh, We have three big opportunities, three big buckets of things that we're believing that God wants us to do. These are needs that are not being met right now. Uh, The first need is that we want to trust God within this next 12 months that we will raise an additional $200,000 to take care of the needs that are right inside our church. This has been a hard time, and some of our benevolence giving, thank God people, some of our benevolence funds have been going down, and thank God it's a good thing. It means that we're, we're helping people. But we want to replenish those things. And I want you to know, uh, you, you, you've pulled up in the parking lot, and you may have walked in here with people who have to make a decision this week between paying their utilities or putting gas in their car to go to, go to work. You might be sitting next to a single parent who doesn't know what in the world they're going to do. They can't give their child a birthday present or whatever because things are so slim and tight. You're sitting next to folks who are looking at Christmas and saying, I got small kids and I don't know what we're going to do this year. This is real stuff. And I say that not to pull any heartstrings, but just to tell you the reality of a body like this. That's, That's where we are. That's where we live. And I'm so proud of our elders and, and our leadership because on our watch, we want to, by the grace of God, help to meet some of those needs. Now, listen, listen, I know some of us have made bad decisions, and that's the reason why we have Kevin Cross and uh, uh, some financial coaches, and we want to help people to get whole so that we don't do that again. But at the same time, we want to do that first. Then secondly, we want to trust God within... Uh, um, a year's time to raise up $400,000 of opportunities that we have seen around us. Just so that you know, 10% of all monies that are received, 10% of all monies that are received goes to our missions budget. Now, these are opportunities beyond what we're budgeted in our missions budget, but things in which that we have been made aware of as we've engaged the community here in Roswell, um, you know, just, just amazing thing, uh, homeless assistance for Fulton County, local health clinics, microenterprise, child's development, a crisis pregnancy center, all these things. I feel bad about denouncing abortion, and yet we're not doing stuff, stuff in a more of a significant way to deliver on that. And so we have these opportunities here. And then we're trusting God to bring in up to $400,000. These are just needs. And and again, I I don't want you to get hung up on the dollar amount here, but if God would work in a great way, we would love uh, 
to do something on a global nature that we're not doing. For example, the sex slave prevention, food in Bangladesh, there's a tremendous opportunity. Gary uh, Klingler has just been spending some time uh, over in Lebanon. I don't know if you're aware of what's going on, but because of the war in Iraq, these Muslims are flooding over into Lebanon, and there's opportunities to share the gospel. It's a Kairos moment. It's a Kairos moment. And we're wondering, does the Lord want us to be involved with that. There are water and sanitation needs on the continent of Africa and Haiti alone. I don't know, you know, the, the compassion kind of meter has, is dying down there, but there are hundreds of thousands of kids who can't get food and have dire medical needs. And so we want to be, want to be a part of that. Now, can you imagine what God could do through us Can you imagine if we could step up and invest in those needs? And again, I want to say this is not, it is not a um, campaign, not at all. In fact, one of the things that we've said is that we don't want anybody to stop giving and redirect their giving from operations. We need that, you know, take it from this pocket and put it over in this pocket. That's not what we're talking about. This is a journey of faith. Karen and I are going to continue to give what we normally give and maybe hopefully some more to our operational side of things. We're going to do that. But we're also taking a step of faith. I don't normally share this kind of thing because I don't think it's anybody's business what you do with this kind of thing. But just so you know that you to know that I've got skin in this game. We're making some sacrifices. There's a membership that I'm canceling that I really enjoy, but I'm going to redirect those funds toward this. There's some other things that Karen and I are going to tighten our belts on because we believe this is a Kairos moment. And by the way, we're not doing those other two things locally and globally until the $200,000 need is met here. That's going to be our barometer. And we just believe that God wants to move us as a church to pour ourselves into these things. And the two things that I want you to do, and trust me, trust me, I don't want to guilt anybody. And, and that's not what I'm doing. The two things that I want you to do is to pray to pray. God, what would you have me to do? And then secondly, obey what God tells you to do. If he says, nah, I don't want you to be involved in that, that's fine. But if he says, I want you to be involved, and you say, I don't know how, well, the how's up to him, and he will provide. And that's what we want you to do. Again, this is all about changed lives. Let's stand together. Let's just pray that God will show us what he wants us to do. And uh, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, know that our hearts, um, they're motivated by the love of God. And God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life, and that is true. You are here. And if you need to talk to anybody about making that commitment to Jesus, I'll be up front. We have a prayer room right out here to my left, your right. And there'll be some people there that would love to talk to you. Holy Father, we bow before you. We thank you for your grace. Thank you, O oh God, for this church that uh, uh, I get to serve and that um, the people love you. They love one another. Lord, we uh, cast ourselves at your feet. This is your church. These are your people. We believe you have placed these things on our hearts. And so, God, without any pressure or whatever, we say, Lord, what do you want to do through us? And how do you want to meet these needs? And I pray, God, over the next few days and weeks ahead that all of us will be searching our hearts and 
coming before your presence and asking you to show us. Now go with us, dismiss us from this place, give us incredible joy. May we look for those Kairos opportunities today or tomorrow to do good in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you.